Hello and welcome back to The Fall of the Roman Empire. It's Nick Holmes and this is episode 59 called The End of Attila's Empire. In the last episode, we heard how the Eastern Emperor Marcion dreamt an angel appeared beside his bed with a broken Hunnic bow. Two days later, news of Attila's death reached Constantinople. So, just how did the great Hun die? We have a very clear account left to us by Jordanes, itself copied from a lost record by Priscus. The story was that in early 453, Attila, quote, married an exceedingly beautiful girl, Ildico by name, the last of his innumerable wives, as was the custom of that nation. After the excessive partying at his wedding and weighed down by wine and sleep, he was lying on his back. He often had nosebleeds, but his blood now flowed backwards since it was prevented from following its accustomed course and spilled down a deadly journey into his throat, killing him. End quote. The next morning, he didn't emerge from his bedroom. His bride was too scared to raise the alarm. And his servants, quote, broke through the doors and discovered Attila's unwounded corpse, end quote. Giordano said that his new bride was found cowering beside their bed, no doubt terrified for her life. Giordanes, who was an abstemious monk, said in reproving tones that it was a shameful death. An alternative version quickly developed and became a popular Germanic legend that Ildico had killed him. She later became something of a national heroine and is meant to have inspired Wagner in his operas to invent Brunhilde, the fiery warrior princess. According to Giordanes, the Huns' immediate reaction was to perform a rite reserved for the death of a great king, called a strava, one of the very few Hunnic words to have survived modern times. This involved a wild celebration around his body, which was placed in the middle of a field surrounded by silk tents, according to Giordanes, quote, a solemn and wondrous sight to behold, end quote. The Huns paraded their horses, recited accounts of his great deeds, and finally they placed his body within three coffins made of gold, silver and iron, respectively. The outer coffin of iron reflected his iron rule, while the gold and silver ones reflected his wealth. One historian has suggested Jordanes or some other source from which he derived this, probably made it up since three metal coffins would have been extremely impractical, not least because of their weight. Whatever the truth, Giordanes says his body was buried in a secret location in the middle of the night, filled with trophies from his victories, and then the slaves and servants who dug it were killed in a rather grim reminder of how brutal the Huns could be, although it should be remembered the same fate also befell those who'd buried Alaric the Visigoth after he sacked Rome. The next day, the Huns awoke to discover that the world looked a very different place without Attila. The great leader had been just that, a great leader, and according to Giordanes, without him, his empire immediately fractured due to a civil war between his sons. 
We don't know how many sons he had, but only three of them seem to have mattered, presumably because they were born to his main Hunnic wife, Kreka. These were Ilak, Dengizich, and the youngest, Ernak. Now, Jordanes says that instead of uniting after their father's death, they did the opposite, and war broke out between the three of them. Within a year of Attila's death in 454, Jordanes says a great battle was fought beside the Nedau River in Pannonia. The river has never been identified, and Jordanes is vague about exactly who was fighting whom. He says it was the Gepids who, under their king Arderic, first revolted against the Huns. He then describes a battle in which all the nations under Attila's sway fought each other, quote, and so the bravest nations tore themselves to pieces. One might see the Goths fighting with pikes, the Gepids raging with the sword, the Rugi breaking off the spears in their own wounds, the Suevi fighting on foot, the Huns with bows, the Alans drawing up a battle line of heavy-armed and the Heruli of light-armed warriors. End quote. Attila's son, Elak, was slain and his brothers fled east. This was the end of Attila's empire, but not of the Huns. Jordanes says rather vaguely that the Gepids' rebellion against the Huns freed not just them, but many other Germanic tribes. Historians think that Attila's empire imploded into at least nine different states. One of these was the Huns, who occupied the eastern half of what is today modern Romania. But to the west were at least eight Germanic groupings, including the Gepids, who occupied what had been the centre of Attila's empire on the Hungarian plains, followed by moving west in a sort of arc, the Sarmatians, Ostrogoths, Skiri, Suevi, Heralds, Lombards and Rugi. Jordanus's history is confusing, a subject I'll come back to in a moment. But, he says, the Ostrogoths defeated the Huns, who, quote, came at them as though they were seeking to recapture runaway slaves, end quote. Apparently, the Goths also scored another victory over the Huns in around 468 at the Battle of Bassianae, when the Huns seem to have been trying to re-establish their authority north of the Danube. It's here that Priscus, whose account has only survived to this day in a few fragments, provides us with the most detailed record we have of what happened to the Huns. He says that Attila's two surviving sons, Ernak and Dengizich, wanted to re-establish relations with the Eastern Romans and restore the Huns' trading rights along the Danube. Accordingly, Dengizich sent an embassy to the new Eastern Emperor Leo, probably around 466. But this time, there was no question of the Romans paying tribute to the Huns, and even giving them trading concessions was rejected, according to Priscus. Although our sources are very limited, this seems to have led to a war in which Dengizich invaded Thrace and was defeated by an Eastern Roman army led by Anagastes, the son of the general Arnagisclus, who'd been defeated and killed by Attila at the Battle of the Eutus River back in 447. Arnagisclus's son got his revenge, defeating and killing Dengizich, and according to a 7th century source called the Easter Chronicle, 
taking his severed head back to Constantinople, where it was, quote, carried in procession through the middle street and fixed on a pole at the wooden circus. The whole city turned out to look at it, end quote. Meanwhile, Dengizic's brother, and according to Priscus, Attila's favourite son, Ernak, didn't participate in this attack on the Eastern Empire since he was distracted by the appearance of new enemies on the Huns' eastern borders. These were probably the ogres, steppe nomads and cousins of the Huns, and ancestors of the tribes that would later be called Turkish. Ernak then disappears from history. This would have been disappointing for Attila, since Priscus described how at the dinner he attended with him, the great Hun was especially fond of Ernak. Quote, he drew him close and gazed at him with gentle eyes. End quote. Priscus went on to say that Beric, a Latin-speaking Hun, who he sat next to at the dinner, said that, quote, prophets had predicted to Attila that his nation would fall but that it would rise again under this sun, end quote. But the prophets had got it wrong. Not only did Ernak disappear, but the Huns themselves, who caused the Roman Empire to tremble, vanished into the mists of time as mysteriously as they appeared. So, what are we to make of all of this? The rapid implosion of Attila's empire has always puzzled historians. One theory is that it demonstrates the simple power of his personal charisma. The great man created the Hun Empire, and once he died, it disintegrated. Well, I think there's some truth in that. I also suggest that there was something else, and that was that he was losing his touch. By that I mean that, as mentioned in the last episode, Attila's last campaigns were not very successful. First, he failed to take Constantinople. Second, he failed to conquer Gaul. And third, he failed to take Rome. For such a legendary warlord, the scourge of God had actually done remarkably little to undermine the Roman Empire. For example, compared with Alaric, who sacked Rome within 15 years of the death of Theodosius I, he was an underachiever. So how do we discover the truth about Attila? My sense is that our principal source on the breakup of his empire, Jordanus's history, is very simplified. One reason is that he wasn't there himself. Jordanes was writing about a hundred years after Attila's death, and his account is based on a history now lost, written by Cassiodorus, a Roman chronicler, itself written a few decades after Attila's death, also called the Gothic history. But Cassiodorus was not writing objective history. His account was designed to flatter Theodoric, king of the Ostrogoths, as he sat in his pseudo-Roman palace in Ravenna in the early 6th century, 50 years after Attila died. In its simplest form, it's a heroic account of how the Ostrogoths, together with the Gepids and other German tribes, revolted against the Huns, defeated them and then migrated to Italy, where they ejected the feeble remnants of the Western Empire and proclaimed themselves kings of Italy. In short, most of that is true, but historians have long suspected that it's an oversimplification of a more complex story, especially when it comes to Attila. 
And I think this is where modern archaeology can help us. As mentioned in episode 53, the recent excavations of 5th century burial chambers in modern Hungary, which was the heart of the Hunnic Empire, are striking in two respects. First, most of them are German, not Hunnic. Second, their contents are not just quite rich, they are staggeringly so. Archaeologists have unearthed a huge collection of gold fittings and ornaments. For the men, these consisted of equestrian equipment in particular, mainly saddles, bridles and reins, which were lavishly decorated in gold. For the women, there are many examples of beautifully made golden jewellery. By contrast, in the 1st and 2nd centuries AD, German graves had contained nothing more than handmade pots and lots of decorated bronze and iron safety pins, which the Germans had a particular fondness for. By the 3rd and 4th centuries, graves contained some wheel-turned pottery and silver safety pins, but not much else. Certainly gold was exceptional, but in the 5th century, there was an explosion of golden items that marked a wealth revolution. This makes sense from our knowledge of the huge gold tributes which the Romans had to pay the Huns in the 5th century. Although the Eastern Empire stopped paying tribute from 450 onwards, in the 440s it had paid a lot of gold to Attila. Attila distributed this among his largely German followers. As you know, Priscus is adamant that Attila wasn't interested in gold ornamentation for himself. Indeed, he detested bling and preferred beautifully carved wooden goblets and plates and his splendid wooden palace. But the key point was that his authority rested on his ability to reward his followers with gold. I think this is the key to understanding the rapid rise and fall of the Hunnic Empire. When there was plentiful gold, it worked. When there wasn't, it didn't. In essence, his empire was a protection racket on a massive scale. But one thing was essential. Victory on the battlefield. Without that, things started to go wrong. As mentioned over the last few episodes, his fearsome reputation as the conqueror of the world and the scourge of God has obscured the fact that his war machine was faltering in both East and West in the late 440s and early 450s. As you know, in 447, his invasion of Thrace was met by a formidable Eastern Roman army, which, although it was twice defeated, nevertheless inflicted heavy casualties on the Huns and prevented it from attacking Constantinople. In 451, his invasion of Gaul was stopped in its tracks by Aetius's Western coalition. My own feeling is that these military failures created a crisis within his empire, which has been underestimated by most historians. Although his Italian expedition, described in the last episode, was marginally more successful, the Eastern Romans were still not paying him tribute and were preparing for battle. With no more gold coming from Constantinople, Attila's grip over his many subjects was faltering. Indeed, I do wonder whether his death on his wedding night was in fact a disguise for something else, an assassination perhaps, or even suicide. There are three reasons for this. First, his behaviour on his wedding night is strangely at odds with the picture painted by Priscus of a man 
who was the opposite of wild and extravagant. You'll remember that Priscus described him in 449 when he met him as someone who was rather considered in his actions and careful, if not to say considerate, in the way in which he treated his followers and even his enemies. It just seems to me that getting blind drunk and then choking on his own blood is not the sort of behaviour consistent with the character Priscus described. Second, why was he marrying Ildico and how many wives did he have? Priscus is confusing on this point because while Attila's main Hunnic wife, Creca, is a central figure in his chronicle, he mentions Attila had, quote, innumerable other wives. But why did he never meet them? Aside from Ildico and, of course, the Roman princess Honoria, who never married him, and a brief mention by Priscus of one other intended wife, we know of no other wives that were actually present at Attila's court. Indeed, Priscus describes Creca as the dominant figure at court. Priscus took gifts specifically for her and met her on at least two occasions when she invited the Romans to dinner. Quote, Creca, Attila's wife, invited us to dinner at the house of Adames, the man who oversaw her affairs. We joined him along with some of the nation's leading men, each of those present, with Scythian generosity, arose and gave us each a full cup and then, after embracing and kissing the one who was drinking, received it back. End quote. It's all very strange, and I can't help wondering whether his marriage with Ildico was made up to hide a more sinister cause of death. Third, and most importantly, did his sons actually fight each other? While Jordanes says they did, quote, for the minds of young men are wont to be inflamed by ambition for power, and in their rash eagerness to rule, they all alike destroyed his empire, end quote. Nevertheless, he provides no evidence of this. Instead, his account of the Battle of the Nedar River is clear that it was the Germans who revolted against the Huns. The account of the battle also raises more questions than answers. To begin with, no one has ever been able to identify a river called Nedau. In addition, the description of the battle is very vague and unhelpful, as shown in the passage I quoted earlier, in which he says everyone was fighting each other with no clear indication of who was on whose side. One historian has recently come up with an interpretation which makes sense to me. The first point is that the Battle of Nedau was shorthand for a number of separate battles fought between individual German tribes, probably both against the Huns as well as against each other. This represented a more complex fracturing of Attila's empire immediately after his death, or even, I suspect, before he died. There then followed ten years of fighting between these various groups, during which time the Ostrogoths probably actually came off worse, contrary to the story told by Jordanes, which was the reason why they gravitated west towards Italy. More of that in future episodes. The core Hunnic group remained along the Danube in what is now modern Romania, but after Dengizic's defeat in the 460s, they fell under the sway of the Bulgars, new arrivals and distant cousins from the steppes, whereupon they disappeared from history as a major independent entity.
But whatever the truth about Attila's death, for the next 20 years, the breakup of his empire would dominate the politics of both halves of the Roman Empire and cause a political realignment of the German kingdoms. The Western Roman Empire was now facing its last years. And that ends this episode. Thanks so much for listening, and I hope you enjoyed it. And if you did, of course, I'd be delighted for any ratings or reviews in whichever podcast app you use. And if you want to hear more about the Romans and also to receive a free ebook, please visit my website at nickholmesauthor.com. There's a link to it in the text description of this podcast in whichever app you're listening to right now. And next week, we'll get back to what Aetius was doing in the West. Thanks for listening and see you next time. <laughs> <laughs>